Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning again. I know the guys have got full tummies. I know the guys have got full tummies. And so um, I'm going to work extra hard up here to make sure I'm loud and that uh, we keep your attention. Um, folks, we're already starting to tear you off. I'm sure you noticed it in Sunday school. They were quiet today, um, myself included. Um, and uh, we were full of uh, chicken and waffles. So we had a great time. And um, we're, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Um, this is a revelation that John was given by an angel. An angel was given by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was given by God the Father. And so we're going to dive into Re Revelation chapter 11 today. It's the, the last week that we'll be doing some kind of introductory work, and then we're going to start working straight through the book. We'll jump back to chapter 1 and work our way straight through, leading all the way up to Easter, where we finish up. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 11. Just hang on to that for a second. I want to start with a slide first, just a note of explanation here. Um, you can see this is the Holy of Holies. This is that kind of inner, innermost room. Uh, where God's presence, God the Father's presence, resides. He literally would come down in the Old Testament age of human history, and he would rest on top of this Ark of the Covenant. It was that thing that Indiana Jones was after. And his presence would rest there, it would reside on top of this Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of Holies. This was at the back of the temple. Before that, the back of the tabernacle. So when they built the brick-and-mortar building, that was the temple. And so that's where God's presence rested. Now let me show you um, another slide here that shows the two ages of human history. So this is the way the Bible sees human history. It sees it with creation at the beginning. So there was a start to human history that God created humankind, mankind. And it's moving all the way through to the final end where we would call that the end of time. And so we're in this span. We're living in this span right now between creation and the end of time. And then the scriptures give us two ages for human history. The first age is what it refers to as the age of the law. Um, and so that's the Old Testament age. That's the point in human history where God's presence came and rested on top of that um, Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was here on earth, inside the temple, in Jerusalem, in the back of that temple, in the Holy of Holies. You follow me so far? All right, so that's the age of the law or the Old Testament age. There's another age that begins. There's an overlap between when one ends and when one begins. And the other one begins with the birth of Christ, the second age of human history. And this is what the Bible refers to as the age of the Spirit or the church age. That's the age that you and I live in now. We don't live in the Old Testament age. We live in the church age. This is the age where God's presence now comes and dwells inside of us. No longer is he back in the back in the Holy of Holies, but now he comes and he dwells inside of us. We'll see that here in just a little bit. I wanted to give you that as a word of explanation because Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 32, he said, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then Jesus says that this fact applies about the Holy Spirit and speaking against the Holy Spirit, either both in either this age, the age of the law, or in the age to come, the age of the Spirit, the church age, the age that we live in now. And so just kind of hang on to those two thoughts because we're going to dive in deep. They're going to help frame out where we're going today. Our text again comes from Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 11. We'll just be reading two verses, so we're standing real short. Shake out those legs, get that blood moving real quick. Here we go. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. 
for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. You may be seated. All right, so this is one of the many visions that John has in the book of Revelation. On this particular occasion, he's looking at the temple. So let's just talk about this verse for a minute. It begins verse 1. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. We would think of this like a yardstick. So it's a staff that's X so long. And John was supposed to take this yardstick. He was supposed to set it down on the ground at the beginning of whatever it was he was supposed to measure. He would make a mark at the top end of that stick. Then he would put the tail at, the top, at that mark. And then he would measure to the next top end of that stick. And he would just keep laying this stick down on the ground until he got from one end of whatever he was measuring to the other end of what it, whatever it was that he was supposed to measure. You say, well, what was it that he was supposed to measure? Well, verse 1 tells us, it says that I, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Here's a picture of what the Jewish temple in the first century might have looked like. This actually comes from the Israel Museum in Israel. This is their mock-up of what they believed to be the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. So this is what's referred to as Herod's temple. This temple was constructed in 516 B.C. Uh, there was a temple, the Solomon's temple before that. It was destroyed in like 586, 587 by the Babylonians. You didn't even know that. But then they rebuilt the thing and completed it in 516. So this is the 516 B.C. temple, or at least a mock-up of it. But that temple in 516, all the way up until the time of Herod the Great, really wasn't very opulent, really wasn't very grandiose. There was nothing really all that special about it. So Herod said, hey, let's give this thing an upgrade. Let's, get, let's make this thing really fantastic, make it something that the world will want to come and check out. And so he contributed, so he did a whole refurbishment of the temple, and so you can see some of the gold that adorns some of the eaves around the outside structure of the building, and you can see just how, uh, how grandiose uh, the temple and the temple complex itself were. Um, people would, in fact, consider this one of the great wonders of the world. They would take trips from Rome, from, uh, from the North Africa, and they would come on vacation to see this great marvel of human engineering. People had never seen anything like this before, and so they wanted to come and check it out. All right, back to verse 1. I was told, John says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Verse 2. John is then instructed, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that part of things out. So let's take a look at our picture again. You can see there, there's the temple itself, and then there's this massive courtyard complex that exists, and it stretches out for a long distance. Um, and so John is told, go and measure the temple itself, the altar, and those who worship there. But I don't want you, uh, the angel says, God says, don't go out and measure that outer complex, that outer courtyard. Leave that part alone. Um, let's keep reading. We're going to learn why John measures some things and why John leaves other things out, okay? Look at verse 2. It says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So why is John not measuring the outer court? Why is he leaving that part out? Um, it tells us in the verse, it says, because that part, the outer court, is to be given over. It's to be, in some of your translations, it'll read to the Gentiles. Um, it's to be given over to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world. In other words, it's no longer going to belong to the Jewish people. God doesn't want you going out there with a stick and measuring that. There's no need to preserve it. You follow me? No need to preserve it because we're going to give it away because we're just going to let them have it. And so the point is, of the measuring, is to identify what parts God plans to preserve and what part God plans to scrap. You follow me? Mm -hmm. Or the waffle's already working on you. Okay. All right. So um, 
So measure the temple, we're going to keep it. Don't measure the outer court, we're going to let that go. And so he tells John who it is that's going to take this. Again, in verse 2, it says, the nations will trample the holy city. Again, the nations in some of your translations will say the Gentiles. And the holy city that's referred to there is, anybody want to take a grab? Jerusalem, all right, that was not very difficult, right? Some people say, oh, no, no, it was Rome, it was the Vatican, that's the holy city. You know, they do some stuff here, some dance and stuff with, the, with, the war, with what's going on in the text. Friends, the, the historic reference to Jerusalem throughout scriptures is as the holy city. In fact, if you read on into verse 8, it says that this location that John's seeing is going to be the place where they crucified their Lord. I mean, where was Jesus crucified? He wasn't crucified at the Vatican. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So that's what we have in view here. That's what we're talking about. Um, all right, let's, let's kind of stop right there for just a second and think about this from John's perspective, right? Because we want to get, we want to go stand, if, I, if we want to think of it like this, we want to stand in the Bible, right? We want to stand in the scriptures and be the person who wrote this and be the audience of the first century or whichever century it was that received the words of the text and then look out and, and interpret our world on the basis of what God's word has to say, rather than us looking at the scriptures from a distance and trying to read into the text and impose on the text what we think from our 21st century perspective of what these words might mean. Rather, we want to know what these words meant to John. So some people think, okay, that John received this revelation that we just read here and all the stuff that's in here, that he received this around 90 to 95 AD. Um, I'll do a little bit more work with the dates in some later messages, but just as a word of introduction about dates here this morning, I've actually got a, a slide for you with a timeline on it of when different people date the book of Revelation, when he received it, when it was written. Some say 90 to 95 AD um, as the time for when he received it. If that's the case, we've learned in our previous weeks that there was this cataclysmic event that took place in Israel. It was the destruction of Jerusalem. Our, our slide for this series, the Revelation, actually shows uh, the painting from 850, uh, the guy that uh, did the oil on canvas of the destruction of Jerusalem, and so, um, so we know in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. We know in 70 AD that the nations of the world trampled on the city of Jerusalem and took it. Um, if, but if John received this revelation in 95, which way would I go? Yeah, in 95 AD, after when, the, when Jerusalem was destroyed, then that means that this temple that God's going to preserve, well, they got to build a new one right? Because in 95 AD, it's gone. There's, it's flattened. There's no more temple there anymore, right? And so if John received this revelation after 70 AD, then we got to build a new temple in Jerusalem. Has that temple been built? No, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But the point is that John's got to come up with a new, another temple has to be built that John would measure and that God would talk about preserving. Um, so <clears throat> now do you suppose friends, if John is in 90 or 95 AD when he people think maybe he received this vision and the temple's been destroyed and God's telling him, hey, I want you to go out and measure the temple that no longer exists, then that might be a point of confusion for John. He might look at that and go, uh, God, maybe you're missing something here. That temple got destroyed 20, 25 years ago. Uh, you know that it's missing. Um, and so that might be a point of confusion for him. Um, and so... That, and one more bit of confusion for John is that Jesus had said in Luke chapter 21 and verse 6, talking about the temple, he said, the days will come when there will not be left one stone 
upon another. And when Jesus says this, he's standing in the, on the Mount of Olives. He's looking down across the Kidron Valley, up the other side, and boom, there's the temple. There's Herod's temple. You can see it. And he's talking about that temple. And he says, not one, the day will come when not one of these stones will be left upon another, which happened in 70 AD, right? So again, John would have been like, hmm, I don't know what's going on here. It's 90, 95 AD, the temple got destroyed, and Jesus said that, that you know, and now you're saying that it's, it's still around, and I got to go measure it. So that would have been, again, a point of confusion for, for John. Let me give you another possibility of what's going on here. Um, another possibility of what God might have been intending to preserve, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, friend, Paul says, are that temple. So option number two is that God never had any intention of keeping the brick-and-mortar temple. He never had any intention of keeping the brick-and-mortar building. Rather, what God had intended was to preserve and keep the believers, because they are now in the new age, the age of the law, I'm sorry, the age of the Spirit, they are now the temple of God in which God's Spirit dwells. God says that, and he says that in verse 1, he says, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Friends, this fits perfectly with everything taught in the New Testament. It fits perfectly with the promise of Jesus who said, not one stone of that temple will be left upon another, and who said, John chapter 14 and verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, talking about the Holy Spirit, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth. And then the end of verse 17 says, Jesus said, you know him, the Holy Spirit, here it comes, for he dwells with you and will dwell in you. John wrote that, right? He recorded Jesus having spoken it. In, his, in John's own gospel. Friends, the book of Revelation is a book of symbolism, the most highly symbolic book in the Bible. And whatever this meant to John, it had to make sense to John. And so again, if the book, of, if, if he received this revelation after Jerusalem was destroyed, he's going, but Jesus said he's gonna, and it's, and it's not here anymore. And so John's thinking to himself, what then is this temple? Again, going back to all the teachings throughout the whole New Testament, the temple, the new temple, are the people of God. So by my reckoning, John's being told two things here. First, he's being told that God plans to scrap the brick-and-mortar temple complex. He's done with that. And he's also done with making that and the city of Jerusalem his home away from heaven. And second, John is being told that God's new dwelling place, the true worshipers of God, that God has every intention of preserving them. Not preserving some building. God doesn't care more about the building than he does the people. God has every intention of preserving the followers of Christ. And friends, if you just watched your granddad get lit on fire by Nero and his soldiers, or you just watched your family get fed to the lions in the gladiator arena, the, the idea that God's going to preserve you and the church, these are comforting words. Now the question is, how long how long must we continue to endure the lions? How long must we continue to endure the tribulation, the persecution that they were experiencing? Um, how long is all this trampling going to take? End of verse 2, Revelation 11 and verse 2. It says, The nations will trample the holy city, that is Jerusalem, 
for 42 months. And then verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 42 months, friends, is 1,260 days. 1,260 days is waffles. It's 42 months. Okay, so how long this trampling of the holy city is going to last? It's going to last for 42 months. And what that means for John and the other persecuted believers is that when they see these events beginning to unfold, that Jesus has talked about, we're going to get to this in future weeks, has talked about in Matthew chapter 24, all these horrible events that are going to take place, all the horrible events that Paul's talking about, or John's talking about here in Revelation, and he begins to see all this stuff unfold. Um, they know that they've got three and a half years left. They know that they've got 42 months left. They've got 1,260 days left until all of that suffering, all that tribulation finally comes to an end. Let me do a little bit of history lesson here with you. Emperor Nero formally declared war against the Jews in early February of 67 AD. He would die a year, less than a year later, um, or about a year later, um, he sent General Vespasian, his top general, to lead the armies of Rome against Israel. I got a map for you here of Asia Minor. Um, Vespasian was the guy. He was uh, he was he was the fellow that the Roman Empire, all people all across the Roman Empire knew. He had a tremendous reputation. Nero said, "I want you to be my guy to go put down this Jewish revolt that has happened about a year or so before." And so, in 67 A.D., in February 67 A.D., they declare war against the Jewish nation. They send Vespasian and his armies across Asia Minor that way. They send them across Asia Minor. They turn the corner of the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea into what is today called, uh, referred to as Syria, uh, and they start heading down into Israel. Um, once they turn the corner down to Israel, they engaged Israel, the Israelite army, in early March or April, and this would have marked their official engagement in the Jewish war. Now, let's count. Okay, I got a slide for you here that shows this engagement from the time that they engaged the Jewish people and Israel in battle until the fall and destruction of Jerusalem in September, uh, three and a half years later. So you take a look at those months. You can kind of count them off. You can see they start the war in April of 67 AD. It's a long war, right? It goes on for many months. It goes on for many years. And there's this engagement with the people of Israel. And it's interesting that from the time that they engaged Israel until the time that the, fall, that the city of Jerusalem fell lands right at 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, just like the Bible said it would. Now, let me, let me read you a few excerpts from a guy named Flavius Josephus. He was a historian at the time, and he was inside. Can we go to the, to the home slide for the, for the series that shows that picture of Titus? He's standing on the precipice. He's going to go after. By the way, again, the picture of this right here is in the lobby on the wall if you want to take a little bit closer look at it. But anyhow, there was a guy that was inside of that burning city. His name was Josephus. He's the most regarded historian from the first century. All the biblical scholars and people quote Josephus. He was really accurate to a lot of the things that he had to say. And so here's some of the stuff that he wrote as he was inside of the city and writing about the events that were taking place in and outside of. Here's what he said. He said, it was a sad spectacle to see the bodies of the dead lying in the street without internment. Bodies laying all around. Nobody had time. They were under siege. Nobody had time to go and try and bury these bodies. And trampled underfoot like the ruins of a field of battle. For some time, however, the Romans were obliged to remain idle for want of materials to finish their works. That is the works of building the ramparts, of building the ramps that would go up and be able to allow them to go over the city walls and take the city. 
But by cutting down all the woods within 10 miles of the city of Jerusalem, they contrived again to raise their platforms. It changed the country, he says, from a paradise into a desert. You can imagine these siege armies of Rome gathered in, in, by the thousands all around Jerusalem and everybody inside of Jerusalem and nobody's coming out and nobody's going in. And these armies have just desolated the entire area all around Jerusalem, taking out every tree. He goes on to say, where instead of beautiful gardens, plantations, and houses of pleasure, not so much as a tree or a cottage was left standing, and the eye saw nothing but desolation and ruin. And after the city fell, the battle was won. And Josephus goes on to record how Titus forced the Jews who's, who survived the uh, siege of the city or, or survived the overtaking of the city, forced them into slave labor and caused them to have to dismantle their own temple. They literally wiped that slate clean, wiped that found, right down to the foundation floor of the whole temple complex. As Jesus said, not one stone would be left upon another. Um, let me show you a picture here of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today. A couple pictures for you. Uh, I think it's circled in red. It'll come up in a second. Um, but there's, a, there's the Wailing Wall, and that Wailing Wall is all that's left of the old temple from 70 AD. It's been 2,000 years. I haven't built that thing yet, right? Uh, the, the temple's Still, it still is not there. And so the Jews come and they pray on a daily basis. And they pray and they ask God, they're beseeching God to please let us build our temple again. Please, God, let us build our temple again. And they're at that wall and they're wailing and they're praying uh, for God to be able to allow them to, 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 to rebuild the temple and restart things again. Um, <clears throat> one more timeline for you here. Let's go back to our timeline for a second. Um, Nero... As I mentioned earlier, he committed suicide, stabbed himself in the throat on June 9th of 68 AD. So he declared war against the Jews in 67, stabbed himself in the throat in 68 AD. Um, as you can see there on that timeline, um, can we go to the one that has the, the, the dates? Um, I, I'm throwing them curveballs. The green one? I think it was green. Um, anyhow, you can see there, Nero uh, stabs himself in the throat in 68 AD, and so the world is just beginning to unravel, leading up to this time of 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so what you end up having here is the Jewish people, uh, you know, their temple's gone in 70 AD, um, everything's leading up to the destruction of that temple, and then um, again, the, the, the 42 months or the 1,260 days of this war that takes place between Rome and between the it, between the uh, Rome and the Jewish people, uh, leading ultimately to the end of of Jerusalem. So, let's uh, yeah, we're, we'll move on. All right, that's what I got for you this morning. Let's talk about that. But most important question: What difference does all this make to your life and to mine? You say, Gordon, I appreciate the history lesson today. I hate. Uh, I'm glad that Nero's gone, uh, but you know that doesn't help me with with all the stuff I've got going on in my life. What difference does this make? To my life today? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I have mentioned in earlier weeks that the reason God destroys Jerusalem and the nation of Israel back in 70 AD is because he is mad. He is red-faced mad because the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah. They've rejected Jesus. Jesus 
they, they crucified him on a cross. And then this was their Messiah. This was their Savior. This was the guy who was supposed to save them. And, you know, in God's providence, he was going to go to the cross. But again, the Jewish people made sure that the nails went into his hands, went into his feet. And God is ticked about that. But there's another reason as well um, why God or, or why God is mad. And so let's take a look at, um, at the slide that has the two ages on it. Um, and you can see here on this slide again, um, the age of the law and the age of the spirit, right? And this overlap period between these two ages of human history. The question is, when did the first age, the age of the law, come to a close? When, when did that end? When did the old sacrificial system terminate? When was it no longer around? And the answer being 70 AD. That's right. Um, the Jewish people have not made any sacrifices for sins, or they have not sacrificed any animals. They have not brought any grain offerings to any temple because the temple is gone. Jesus talks in the New Testament about the end of at least one of these ages. And this is where a lot of the confusion lies when we're dealing with some of the New Testament discussion about the end of the age. He uses that phrase, the end of the age, and there's some confusion that arises. Um, on one occasion, the disciples, you know, he just had told them, he's looking at that temple, he just, he just told them, hey, look, not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. And the disciples say, well, hey, can you tell us when this is going to happen? Jesus, what are going to be the signs? That we are to look for. And so Jesus says to them, verse chapter 24 and verse 3, where they say, tell us when, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And again, you'll see that phrasing, the end of the age, all over the place in the New Testament. Well, for us, from our 21st century reference, a lot of us, what we'll do is we'll read that phrase, the end of the age, and we think he's talking about the end of time. But that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. Jesus is talking about the end of the age of the law, the end of the sacrificial system age, the end of the age of taking a, a lamb to the temple and, and taking its life and using that as a, as a sin substitute for my sins and for yours. And so that's the, end of, that's the age that Jesus is talking about here. And we know this um, because what Jesus says next, he says in verse 9, he says to the disciples, hey, look, you want some signs? I'll tell you what one of the signs is going to be. Remember, he's talking to the disciples that are sitting right in front of him. He says, they then, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, that is persecutions, and put you, not talking about you, talking about the disciples who are gathered around him, and put the disciples, you guys, they will put you to death. And friends, that didn't happen in 2002. 19. That happened in the first century, that the disciples were put to death. And Jesus says that's going to be a sign that that age, the first age, the age of the law, is coming to a close. My point is, when the Bible speaks on almost every occasion about the end of the age, it is referring not to the end of time, but rather is referring to the end of the age of the law. And that is, and now, why is that so important to our discussion about the destruction of the temple? It's important because this is, again, where the Jewish people made their sacrifices for sin. This is how they dealt with their sin problem. They would go to the temple, they would bring their sacrifices, they would let the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb, and they would let that blood pour out, and then they would sprinkle it on the altar. And this made the atonement, this made the forgiveness for their sins. But the writer of Hebrews tells us, 
that a new and more perfect, a perfect sacrifice has been made on your behalf and on my behalf. And talking about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, he says, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, but into the second room, into that Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells, only the high priest goes there, but he, but only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. And he even acknowledges, verse 9, and all of this is symbolic for the present age. Talking about the age of the law. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, verse 12, he entered once for, the, in, once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Let me break that down. No longer do you have to go to the temple, to the brick and mortar structure with your lamb and take its life and allow that blood to be poured out on your behalf and sprinkled on the altar of God. Now a more perfect sacrifice, Jesus who walked not into the, if you read in through Hebrews chapter 9, not walked into not a temple made with human hands, but rather he walked into the more perfect temple, the one that's in heaven, and he walked up to God the Father who was seated on his throne that had real live cherubim, not those gold statues that you see, but had real live cherubim, and he was seated on his throne, and Jesus walked in and he sprinkled, right, his blood upon the altar of God in heaven. This is Hebrews chapter 9. And it's still there today as a sin substitute for your sins and mine. Um, one more quick thought, and then we'll wrap up here. Let me show you a picture of the Wailing Wall again. Can you see what's in the background of the Wailing Wall, what's on top of where the temple used to be? Does anybody know what that is? The mosque, right? We got another picture for you that shows the whole complex. That's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim holy site. Friends, I don't care how much the Jewish people pray. God's not going to allow that old, sacrificial, outdated, no longer works systems to be brought back. They can pray, and they can pray, and they can pray. But God is not going to allow that old sacrificial to be, system to be resurrected. A new and more perfect system has been paid on our behalf through Jesus. Um, the old antiquated system, the way of dealing with our sins, God made sure that that old system was done away with, had became extinct in 70 AD. God's not going to allow the Jews or anybody, anybody, to resurrect that old system. As the song says, Jesus paid it all. It's done. All to him now. I owe. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the reminder that the old sacrificial system no longer needs to be tapped into. You did everything that needed to be done on the cross. Lord, all we need to do now is ask you for forgiveness. All we need to do now is put our faith and trust in your work on the cross as the sin substitute for us. You paid the price. We just have to accept it. Lord, as we gather around this table today, we're reminded of your shed blood. We're reminded of your broken body, of the price that you paid. Lord, may we with grateful hearts receive these sacraments, these reminders. May we with grateful hearts today, Lord, 
turn to you again fresh and new, trusting in you for the full forgiveness of all of our sins so that we can spend eternity with you in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.